0: Well, let me say, uh, by way of preface to this week's sermon, not being Charles Spurgeon, I don't get my sermons handed to me by God on Saturday. Um, They are a struggle and a blessed struggle, which I enjoy and am thrilled by. And this one really was because there is just so much to say to faithfully serve God by opening it and faithfully serve you by making it plain to you, particularly given that this section... uh, Of course, you'd expect an unbeliever to come to this section with difficulties in understanding it, but so many Christians come to this section with false or inadequate Bible teaching and and just a a suitcase full of worldly assumptions that need to be cleared away and replaced with God's truth. So here's what I'm going to do with this sermon. Um, I'm just going to preach till either uh, we run out of time or I run out of energy. And stop there and then finish it next week and uh, not rush any part of it and not leave you feeling just absolutely dazzled as if a, a freight train had gone over you. So that said, let us pray together. Well, our great God, every word of yours heard rightly shatters human pride. We cannot learn of you and remain proud at the same time. It just can't be done. But some words in your words seem particularly crafted for that purpose to lay us low, to put us where we belong in the dust at your feet. These words today are just such words. Oh, send your spirit, Heavenly Father. Send God the Holy Spirit today to bring these words home to us in all of their wisdom, beauty, and power, in all of their humbling effect exalt yourself in our midst today abase us grant us wisdom grant us humbling grant us repentance in Jesus name amen well i think uh, to many churchgoers this section that we're in Matthew 11:25 through 26 uh, 25 through 30 is the section I think this section presents uh, the good Jesus and the bad Jesus. It starts off with the bad Jesus in verses 25 through 26, who seems to exalt his father for his work of reprobation. But then we get into the, the, the words we like to hear better in verses 28 through 30, except for the choose to reveal him part. And we like rushing to the good Jesus part and kind of forgive him for the bad Jesus part and try to pretend like it never happened, uh, as we would with an unpleasant event in some friend's life. But of course, the truth of the matter is, this is all real Jesus. If we want to know the real Jesus, the actual Jesus, all of this is him. All of this exposes his heart and his mind to us. And if our vision of Jesus is other than what we see here, if we come to these words and find that we have to massage them and change them and apologize for them and be embarrassed by them, well, then it's not Jesus we're worshiping, it's, it's still ourselves we're worshiping. In fact, this is a good test, this section, to see whether we are worshiping the actual Jesus or our own ideas. So. That said, I want to look at these words closely with you because they're remarkable words. Have you ever been in a position where perhaps incidentally you you overhear a conversation between two people and after a moment or two maybe you're waiting for a doctor's appointment or a, a plane or a train and you hear this conversation and you realize well these are two people who've known each other for a very long time. They've, they've got a deep relationship, they've got a long relationship, and almost accidentally you're getting a little peek into that relationship. Well, this is what we have here, because we actually are hearing the eternal Son speaking to his Father. We're getting a snatch of a conversation that has actually been going on forever, since before time. In overhearing Jesus speaking to his Father, we're taking a step into the heavenly throne room, and hearing Jesus speaking to God. God the Son, addressing God the Father. And in hearing these words, we're brought into God's eternal counsels. We're hearing God the Father and God the Son. We're hearing the Son's word to the Father. So we'd best take the the sandals off our feet, because this is holy ground. we best be sure that what we hear Jesus saying is what he's saying. That we uh, understand it the way he meant it, and not impose on it our own prejudices, our biases, the assumptions of our age, the assumptions of our our fallen pride. This is always a danger, and it's a great danger here. So the first thing we need to do is make sure that we can understand Jesus' thinking. Roman numeral one, Jesus' thinking. Can we understand Jesus' thinking? Of course we can. Jesus has a context, and it's important that we understand that context. So suppose a man said, God is good. Well, how can you misunderstand that? Well, but what if I told you that he just stepped out of a Joel Osteen uh, worship service? Or if I told you he just stepped out of a mosque? Or he just stepped out of a Christian science meeting center? Or a Unitarian Universalist center? Well, then we would have four five different meanings to those simple words, depending on the context of the person. So we must understand the context out of which the Lord Jesus, who, though eternal God as to his divinity, is entirely human as to his humanity. And he speaks out of a specific context. And that context, of course, is what we call the Old Testament, the Torah, the the Bible as it existed at Jesus' time, the 39 books of the Old Testament. This is the context he comes from and speaks into. So first, let's make sure we understand Jesus thinking about God, uh, capital letter A, his thinking about God. And to understand that, we have to go, to the very first verse of the Bible. And you say, oh good, this is going to be really simple because everybody understands that verse. Oh, I don't think so at all. In fact, I would say that if you were to consider uh, all of mankind, all of humanity, and ask how many of of all the people alive, how many would say that they believe Genesis 1-1, well, you know that we would end up with a subset of that number. We'd end up with a relatively small subset of that number. But I make bold to tell you That of the people who say they believe it only a tiny tiny portion has any idea of the depths of riches in this verse. It's as if you took a friend who'd never seen the Sistine Chapel before and took him into the actual Sistine Chapel and you you just stood him under it and said look at that and your friend looks up and says huh, pretty just like that you take him to the to the Grand Canyon, you find he'd never been there before, never even seen a picture of it. You find some beautiful vantage point, and you there's all the, the wonder and splendor of the Grand Canyon. You say, look at that. And he glances over, and he says, big. Now, has he seen these wonders? Well, in a way, I guess you could say he did, right? But did he feel any of the impact of these wonders, this work of art, this work of creation? No, just a glance. And I dare say most people just take a glance at Genesis 1 1. And you can tell if somebody goes on to talk about uh, how. Uh... Man's free will really controls what happens between us and God. And it's really God is put in a position of meaning well for all humanity, offering salvation for all humanity. But really it's up to us, our, our, our self-determined will, our little pocket from his sovereignty where God needs to look and see what we're going to do. And then he needs to plan around that. And he needs to respond to what we do. A person who thinks that does not get Genesis 1 1, doesn't get the most fundamental truth of the Bible, who imagines anything can be independent of the sovereignty of God, that person just doesn't even get the first verse of the Bible, let alone the rest of the Bible. So let's look at it to- together again. We see the words in the beginning. That's just one word in Hebrew, in beginning. Now, Keep that sound in your mind. It'll it'll have a reason in a few minutes. Reshith. That word means beginning. Reshith. So in beginning, now just uh, thinking, um, I say white, you say black, I say up, you say, I say beginning, and you think, well, that's legitimate. Notice that it doesn't say on the first day God created the heavens and the earth. What does it say? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And what we're meant to see in that is that with the first act of the existence of our universe, God already had the end of our universe in mind. That He created and designed what He created and designed to end up where He already had determined it would end up. Because remember, God's intelligence is mine is infinite. It does not have sequence. He doesn't learn things. He knows everything at once because he decrees everything at once. He knows what he knows because he's decreed that what would happen. And so, in the creation of the universe, he creates the purpose and the goal of the universe at the same time. Think of this. When he creates, he's not making out of pre-existing matter, He's not consulting a guidebook for, let's see, how do I do creation? I, I do this, and what? Part, and this, this. this. No. Nope. Every bit of it comes from his own heart, his own mind, his own resources. And so that means that every bit of it is designed by God for his purpose. And has its continued existence for that purpose. You think, no, I don't follow you there. I, I know what it is to create. I create all the time. Every night I create dinner. In my kitchen and send it off to my family. They take it off and they eat it. I create something in my workshop in the garage and it goes off to wherever it goes off and somebody uses it. At work, I design something. It's fabricated and it's put to use, but I don't hover over it and control it or anything like that. Well, I guess that's true when you and I create things, but we're not really creating things, are we? We're creatures making things out of other creatures. We're using already created things and maybe reconfiguring them or redesigning them or repurposing them, but we don't really create anything. Now, think about God who actually really did create everything. How did that happen? There was no pre existing matter, there was simply the eternal, timeless God who, in his good pleasure, decides to create this universe with a particular designed end in mind. And so, creates every part and every component of this unimaginably vast array for his purpose. And then what happens? Does he just sort of send it off? Bye-bye, have a nice history. Is that how it works? Well, suppose God had created something, and then it left his hand. What would happen then? Poof, it doesn't exist. How could it exist? By what power could it exist? What power is there other than the power that God creates? What ability to to be is there besides the ability God creates and sustains? And this applies not just to massive bodies in the heavens, but to the tiniest, smallest components of reality. Everything that exists owes its beginning and its continued existence to the sovereign will of God. It exists only by his pleasure, and this is all important, it exists only for his pleasure. We read in Colossians 1.17 that all things cohere in Christ. As a kid, maybe you saw those little round atoms and those little round molecules and you wondered, how do things hold together? (laughs) If I stack round things, they they fall apart. (laughs) They dissolve into a mass on the floor. How do round things hold together and make Bodies and 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 rocks and buildings. Well, because Christ holds them together, in short, because he holds them together, second to second to second. And how do they go where they're going? If Hebrews 1:4 tells us that Christ carries all things by the word of his power. Uh, Romans 11.36 tells us all things exist through him, uh, from him and through him and for him. So This is not just a burst of creation and then let's see what happens. God certainly doesn't look down the annals and see what things independently are going to decide to do apart from His sovereignty. Uh, No, God designs everything with an end in mind and everything will serve God's end or it would not exist. The continued existence uh, depends on the continuing work of God which He designed with the end in mind. Now, Isaiah, as it were, expounds that. Turn to Isaiah 46 with me. That's after the Psalms in the middle of your Bible. Then you get Proverbs, and the next really big book is the book of Isaiah. Look at chapter 46 with me. And we'll just pick up with verse 9. God, speaking through the prophet Yahweh, says, remember the former things of old, former's roshona, which is related to that word, reshith, I mentioned a moment ago. For I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me. Now, he's saying more than just saying that if you're going to make a party for gods, only pull out one chair, although that's true too. But he's he's asserting his own is absolute ultimacy. There's nothing that deserves the name of God. So, that's not just an ontological uh, statement. In other words, a statement of being. It's a practical statement. There's nothing that does what God does. There's nothing that occupies the place that God occupies. He is alone. He's unique. He's sole and sovereign. So, look at verse 10 for more on that. Declaring the end from the beginning. oh, is that the same word as the beginning in, in Genesis one one? As a matter of fact, it is, declaring the end from reshith, from the beginning, a conscious callback to Genesis one one. So when I made that little, uh, when I asked you the question, what do you think when you hear beginning? I wasn't just making it up. Here it is in Isaiah forty six ten. God declares the end from the beginning, so at the very beginning, He's already designed the end. As sure as the beginning is, so sure is the end. Unless anyone try to wiggle around the obvious import of these words and say, yeah, God has the beginning and the end, but what happens in between, that's entirely up to us. Well, keep reading. He says, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand, and I... ...will accomplish all my purpose. Calling a bird of prey from the east... ...the man of my counsel from a far country... ...I've spoken and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed and I will do it. But in the playing out of this history... ...of the the ages between the beginning and the end... ...there are many beings acting and making choices... ...and taking actions... ...and they choose according to their nature... ...they choose what they want to choose... How does that relate to this? Well, it relates in this way. That in all of this, God's counsel is standing. In all of this, God's intention is being carried out. In all of this, God's plan is coming to fruition. No exceptions. Everything that happens is part of his plan. He declares the end from the beginning. He does his purpose and does what he says he's going to do. He brings to pass. As I've purposed, so will I do. So the set of what God decrees will happen and the set of what does happen are identical sets. This is the sovereignty of the God of Scripture. This is what it is to be that God. He's that ultimate. He's that sovereign. And it is not to His honor to try to tone that down. I'm I'm showing you some passages, but we could spend uh, just about forever looking at all the passages that assert the same thing. So... What's the practical uh, upshot to us? Uh, Just turn back a chapter to chapter 45, Isaiah 45, verses 9 and 10. Isaiah 45, 9. Woe to him who strives with him who formed him. A pot among the earthen pots. Does the clay say to him who forms it, what are you making? Or your work has no handles? Woe to him who says to a father, what are you beginning? Or to a mother, with what are you in labor? Yes, the prophet goes there, the potter and the clay. And God is the potter and we are the clay. Well, what does that mean in the, in the deep sense of the understanding of this verse? Exactly what it seems to mean. God is the potter, we are the clay. In the Hebrew text, it says, God is the potter and we are the clay. When Paul quotes it in Greek in the book of Romans, it means, God is the potter and we are the clay. And we're in no position to challenge what God does because he's the potter, we're the clay. He's the creator, we're the creatures. He's the Lord. We're the servants. This, this is the united voice of Scripture. And all of the choices that are made and all the sins that are sinned and all of the folly that's done as well as all of the righteousness and wisdom that's done, all of it is part of his designed plan. Because when he created at the beginning, he already had the end in mind and created everything with a view to that end. His end. And he declares that end and he says my counsel will stand. And he says, I will bring to pass all my counsel. This is what God says. Our place is to say amen and take our place under that truth. So turn to uh, look at the same same chapter, but verse 22. God calls out, turn to me and be saved, all ends of the earth. This is his command, his preceptive will. For I am God and there is no other. By myself I have sworn... from my mouth it has gone out in righteousness, a word that shall not return to me. Every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear allegiance. Oh, we say that sounds familiar. I've heard stuff like that, haven't I? Yes, you have. In Philippians chapter 2, Paul speaks of Christ's self-emptying and humbling, his death on the cross, his burial, his resurrection, his ascension to the right hand of the Father. And the Father has given him the name above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. But how can God know that if he doesn't sovereignly control history? If there's one bit of history that is out of his control, how can he say something like that? For this to happen, countless wills must be brought to carry out his will. If he doesn't have the power to assure that everyone confesses the Lordship of Christ... How can he say it will happen? But he says it, and as we read in Isaiah, he'll do it. His counsel will be done. He will bring to pass what his word is. He's the sovereign God, the frustrating God who can never be frustrated. He carries out his purpose. He is the creator. And somebody might say, well, can't he make something that is free of his sovereign rule? I don't know if, if, if you hear that and you think that's a really deep question, it's not a deep question. It's, it's a meaningless question. To say that God can make something free of his sovereign rule. What would that be? That would be for him to, to put aside his sovereignty in some area or for some length of time. Does that idea, don't, don't answer this. Does that, I, I don't trick people, so don't answer this. Does that idea make sense to you? God can just suspend his sovereignty either somewhere or for some length of time. If that idea makes sense to you, then you don't see God in Scripture yet. It doesn't make any more sense than if I were to say, you know, we've got a problem. Obviously, everybody's a sinner and God's holy. How can we get sinners saved? I know God can just lower his holiness for a while to let people in and then we can be saved. Brilliant idea. Now you can answer. No, but why is it not a brilliant idea? Because if God were to lower his holiness, he wouldn't be God anymore. Well, then he should lower his righteousness. No, you have the exact same problem. If you're to lower his righteousness, he wouldn't be God anymore. But if you think, oh, but he can let his sovereignty go, then you don't get who God is. We need to go back to Genesis 1.1. For God to stop being sovereign is for him to stop being God. It is who he is. Sovereignty and lordship is not just a thing God does. Does it's who he is? Can I get an amen to that? It's who he is, and he can no more suspend being who he is than he can make two plus two equals five. And if somebody to say, well, You don't think God's able to do that, it's not a question of able. That, that, that's not a good question because it's not a matter of being strong enough. You know, are you strong enough to make two plus two equal five? It's nothing to do with strength, it's an absurdity. And it's not a matter of strength to ask if God can cancel his sovereignty so we can be a little sovereign. This is who he is and it's glorious that he is who he is and it's as should be. And thank God that he is who he is and that he's never other than who he is. So this is the view of God Jesus comes with. This prayer that he prays comes from seeing God this way because this revelation is, the, is his revelation. These words are his words and He has, he Signs on to every bit of truth and teaching in the entire Torah. It is the word of God to Jesus. Because Jesus is a God and knows for a fact. All those are God's words. So, there's a background for Jesus thinking about God that we need to understand this section properly. Now, what about man? We need to see Jesus thinking about man, letter B. For that, well, let's go back to Genesis one more time. Because that's where man starts too. Now, you see, as you would expect if you if you thought about it, the, the first verse says, in the beginning, so this suggests that God has the end in mind, and sure enough, creation is very orderly. God obviously knows what he's doing. He does things in a certain order, not um, making it up as he goes along, like, like you or I might do, but he has his plan in mind, and he does each day's work on the day, and the... Uh, climax of this work of creation is the creation of man. Look at verse 26, chapter 1. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion. So he creates man in his own image, verse 27, and blesses him and gives him a charge to rule over the earth. So whatever it means to be made in man, in God's image, it at least means this, that there can be a relationship, that God can direct the man, and the man can understand God, can hear his word, can believe it, can carry it out. That It at least uh, uh, includes the capacity to do that, which capacity animals don't have. And so man is created uh, with this responsibility and this relationship. We get a close-up on that then in chapter 2, and look at verse 7. Yahweh God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. God planted a garden, put the man in the garden, and then uh, verse 15, to work it and keep it. And he commanded him, verse 16, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat, for in the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. So man is created in original holiness. And the capacity for understanding God, the first knowledge man has of God is he hears his words. He hears his words charging him as to his responsibility to rule under God. He hears the rich provision. I mean, he wakes up to a world of wonders, uh, richly supplied with everything he needs, absolutely everything he needs. And he's told, you can eat from any tree in this garden. One exception Do not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for in the day you eat of it you will surely die. So what is going on here? Man is created, he's tasked, and he's tested. How is he tested? Well, he's given a positive command and he's given a negative command. And so, It's only with the introduction of of some law that you find out whether there's obedience or respect there or not. If, If there's no commands being given, you can't tell what the color of the relationship is. But God commands Adam. He gives him provision. He gives him a positive command. He gives him a negative command. He gives him a warning. He tells him what will happen. He will surely die. He'll absolutely die if he eats the fruit of that tree. So what is it that's going on here? Well, this is a probation. This is a test. Who's being tested? Remind me, what's the name of the first man? Oh, I didn't know. You're all Hebrew scholars. What does Adam mean? You just said a Hebrew word. What does that word mean? Man. I heard it. Indeed it does. Adam means man. It means mankind. Now, I hasten to say, he was an actual, literal individual, just as surely as Jesus was. He was the first individual But that doesn't mean that he wasn't more than that. Because he was more than that. What was he? He was Adam. He was man. He was mankind. This was our representative being tested here. And as he was tested, we were all tested. And before anyone thinks, uh, well, that doesn't sound very fair, um, you think you would have done better? Uh, I, I tell you, you would not have done better. I would not have done better. Think of who this was. This was somebody who had a perfect father, and none of us had that. He had a perfect father. He had a perfect upbringing. He had a perfect environment. He had no nasty DNA. He had, he had no flesh with its lusts and corruptions. He didn't have bad friends. He didn't have a world to fight against. There was no world yet to oppose him. No flesh. There was a devil, however, but that was part of the test. But he had everything he needed and uh, stood the test on our behalf, he stood as our representative, and as it would go with him, it would go with us. Were he to pass the test, his progeny would be blessed. Were he to fail, his progeny would fail with him. And what happened? Well, we know what happened. He indeed did fall, and in his fall, we fell all. He, he fell, and we were condemned. He failed the test, and we were accounted guilty. Uh, Paul explains this in Romans chapter 5. Take a look there makes this very, very clear. And and just start getting this plain in your mind. This is the test. This is the last test. This is the only test. This is the only time uh, until Jesus that a perfectly innocent man was tested on behalf of others. Jesus is the only other time. That's why he's the second Adam and the last man. They are the heads of two different humanities. Now we're looking at the head of our humanity, every one of us by natural birth. Romans 5, verse 12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. Now these are very, very heavy words. This is a heavy section. I want to try to make it as simply clear as I can. You could read that and think, oh yes, we all die because we all sin. No, that's not what he said at all. Sin came into the world through one man, and through that one man's sin came death, and death spread to all men because of that one man's sin. In his sin, we were sinners. Now, if that's not obvious, the next verses make it clear. He says, sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but you can't count sin when there's no law, so what law did they break? People after Adam were not put in the Garden of Eden and told not to eat of the tree, and if they would eat it, they'd die. They didn't have that same test, and yet they died. So for what sin were they dying? For Adam's sin. And so he says in verse 15, the free gift, uh, uh, he's talking about of life in Christ, is not like the trespass, for if many died through the one man's trespass. Just get that into your head. Many died. Who is many? all natural descendants of Adam, and that's all of us. Every child of Adam died through the one man's trespass. You say, but I sinned too. Yes, but you were already a sinner. You were already condemned, already guilty, because the test had already been given, and it had already been failed by our representative, by Adam. So, one man's trespass. I'm just going to skip for a second to verse 16 to make the one point. Verse 16 Uh, the second sentence, for the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. And then verse 17, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through the one man. Verse 18, therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men. Verse 19, for as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. Do you see, does this all just make as clear to you as it should that... By Adam's failure, we were, in his test, we were tested. In his failure, we failed. In his condemnation, we were condemned. And so we are guilty and we are sinners because of Adam. And of course, the truth is, we've sinned many, many times since. And we sin freely in the sense that we did what we wanted to do. We are free to choose our next sin. We're free to choose the way we want to rebel against God. But we are condemned and guilty, and we're slaves of sin, as chapter 6 says. Slaves of sin who cannot free ourselves. This is what we are in Adam. Now, in the same section, Paul speaks of another head to humanity. Who's that? Jesus Christ. And he is the head of all who are in him. How do you get to be in Adam? You just be born to his family. How do you get to be in Christ? By election. By God's sovereign act. Uh, 1 Corinthians 1.30 By his doing are we in Christ. And on and on. This is an act of God. And what Jesus does is despite all our sins and all our guilt Jesus' act of obedience is credited to us. As surely as Adam's sin was so Jesus' righteousness is credited to all who are in him. So Back to God and man, we want to go back to the original standing then. Man, as he leaves the Garden of Eden, shut out from the presence of God, he's tested and he's condemned. The test has happened. So, you want to talk about other chances? This was the chance. This was the test. And we're all born post test because we're all born post fall. So, now let's talk about letter C about God and man. Every last son of Adam is already tested. Already tried, already failed, already condemned, already guilty. And it's very important to understand that this is how Jesus sees our race. Not as needing a second chance, a third chance, a fourth chance, a fifth chance. We don't, we don't need, we're already born out of chances. You really need to understand that. Where, you say, but I see the, okay, don't get ahead of me. Yes, you read about other chances, but don't get ahead of me. The fact is, we start off owed, do you hear me? Owed, no chances. So it's like this. You're watching the Astros, and it's the bottom of the ninth inning, and some really bad team is beating them 500 to nothing, the Rangers. And, uh, did I say that out loud, or is that just a thought? Um, But they're, they're, they're losing. It's the bottom of the ninth, and... Uh, you know, Jordan Alvarez watches the third strike sail over the plate, and, and, did I say that name out loud? No, he's he's a wonderful hitter, uh, except when he watches strike sail over the plate. And uh, he watches the third, and and the game's over, and they've lost, and then the Astros trot out on the field for the 10th inning. And everybody goes, what are you doing? And they say, well, we want another chance. What other chance? You just lost 500 to nothing. That was the game. Those nine innings, that was the game. Yeah, but we think in another inning we could pull it out. Well, it's irrelevant what you think. (laughs) The game's over. You lost the game. You lost it handily. You lost it by a lot. Nobody's going to play with you. Nonetheless, we insist that we're going to play. (laughs) Well, um, now suppose that just, because it's my analogy, suppose the uh, um, umpires say, okay, And suppose the Rangers say, this could be amusing. And they go and they play a 10th inning and they lose again. And the bottom of the 10th, the score is now 1,000 to nothing. And the Astros trot back on on the field for the 11th inning. What are you doing? Well, we think we can pull this out. And inning after inning after inning, maybe they start thinking that they're owed innings because they keep getting innings, but what is the reality? The game is already over after the 9th inning. And that's where you and I are. That's where we're born. The game's already over. We think we're owed all sorts of chances and second chances and third chances. No, we are not. That already happened. The perfect test on the perfect man by the perfect God, and the man failed. And with him, we all failed. And so God owes us nothing but judgment. Now, we think it's going to be like the Hollywood movie, Where in the last act, there really is going to be another chance. But we're not owed another chance. We all talk this way, but that's because we're all sinners. And we say, well, we don't think that that test was fair. And by saying that, we just prove that it was. Why? Because we're putting our judgment over God's judgment. And that was the whole thing, right? Do you follow me? When I say, I don't agree with that test, it was unfair... I'm doing the same thing. <laughs> I'm eating of the tree of knowledge of fruit. And I'm saying my wisdom's better than God's wisdom. And I'm saying the test was fair. Because I'm coming down on the wrong side of it still. So as Jesus looks at mankind. He looks at a, at a race that's already been tried. Already been tested. And already condemned. So what did he come to do? Why was he even born? What was the point? Well the point was the grace of God. And and I say with all the earnestness in my heart, if you don't get what, what we just looked at together, if you don't get the full force of everything we just saw in scripture, you don't get what a gracious thing the gospel is. I believe that with all my heart. If we don't understand how sovereign God is, how guilty we are, then we don't understand how great the gospel is and how wonderful the grace of God is in sending a but well, what did he come to do? He call his name Jesus because he himself will save his people from their sins. Now, there are many people who translate that to, well, he came to offer salvation. Oh, okay, so he came to offer salvation. How many would accept that offer? Nobody would. Nobody would. Why? Well, okay, Romans 5, we just looked at Romans 5. Now look at Romans 8. So where did Romans 5 leave us? In Romans 5, we saw that uh, we were tested in Adam, we fell in Adam, we were condemned in Adam, his sin was imputed to us. So where does that leave us? Does that leave us all our own little Adam, ready to face our own little test? We're We're all neutral spiritually, morally, we're ready to start all over again? Well, no, we already saw in chapter 5 that's not the case. Chapter 8 tells us where we are. Where are we according to chapter 8? Well, verse 7 says, For the mind that is set on the flesh. Now what he means is the attitude the flesh produces. This is the flesh's attitude. This is, this is your and my natural setting apart from a work of grace. This is the way we all are. Not just a hardened subset, but every man in Adam apart from a work of grace is this way. What is the mind set on the flesh? What does it say? Hostile to God. Neutral to God? Hostile to God. Seeking God? Hostile to God. Huh. Could go either way? No. Gone one way. Hostile, hateful, resentful to God. Read on. For it does not submit to God's law. Well, duh, we see that. But wait a minute, do we see this? Indeed, it cannot Oh, wait a minute, my system of the gospel and man, anthropology and everything, insists that man can, that man always has the ability to change himself and make himself into a God lover, make himself into a believer. He always has that choice and ability to transform himself. Well, that's an interesting system. It's not the Bible's system. It's not Paul's system. What does Paul say? Indeed, it cannot it is not in the ability of the flesh to submit to God's law. It will not come from within me to submit to God's law. Oh, what a helpless place that puts me in. But it gets worse. Look at verse 8. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Are not able to. Lack the ability to. No, but I don't agree with that. I I, I have the ability to believe and, and to choose Christ and then he'll I'll please him. Well, but What I read here, as long as I'm in the flesh, I don't have that ability. I cannot, cannot submit to God's law, including the gospel. I cannot please God. What a desperate position that is. But I tell you, friend, until we see how desperate our position is, the gospel won't seem like the good news it is. And the salvation of Jesus won't seem like the glorious thing it is. It'll seem like he helped us. Oh, no matter what we say, the bottom line is, yeah, we couldn't have done it without him. And he couldn't have done it without us. Do a lot of Christians think that way? Absolutely. Is that what you see here? Absolutely not. He didn't need our help. We didn't need his help either. We needed his saving. And so, he came to save sinners, not to offer salvation. If that were the case, what does Romans 8 tell us? We would all turn it down. If all I came to do was offer salvation, we would all say, no, thank you. Salvation means you're my Lord and not me. No, thank you. Except without the thank you. (laughs) We would not even say thank you. No, none of us would be saved. So it takes a massively powerful, comprehensive, miraculous work of God to save a sinner. As Spurgeon said, even greater than the creation of the universe. In the universe, you make everything out of nothing. In the conversion of a sinner, you make something into its opposite. And all by grace and without the assistance of the sinner, but by the grace of God alone. So this is why you see Jesus coming. And what's the first preached word out of his mouth in the, in the Gospel of Matthew again? What's the first thing he says? Repent. Now, why does he not say repent except for those of you who have been making good choices? Why doesn't he say repent except for those of you who are sincere and you haven't hardened your heart and you're really kind of, you know, kind of a little soft towards God. Why does he not say that? Because in Adam all die. Because the mind of the flesh is unable to please God. And because there's only two kinds of people in the world. Those who do repent and those who don't repent. And his saying repent draws, draws that line. And now we're on one side of that line or we're on the other side of that line. But there's only to humanities there is no person who doesn't need to repent it's it's a it's comprehensive there's only two kinds of people in the entire universe of natural born children of adam there's there's the repentant and the unrepentant there's those who are saved and those who are lost there are those who are under god's favor and those who are under god's wrath and there's no third neutral category having its fifth or sixth test there's just two categories so, this is the background in Jesus' thinking. We need to understand that, or we want to understand the foreground, Roman numeral 2, of Jesus' thanking. T-H-A-N-K-I-N-G. Jesus' thanking. We'll just get this started, and then finish it off next week, Lord willing. <clears throat> So, in verse 25, at that point, Jesus, in response, said, I openly acknowledge you, Father, Lord of heaven and of earth, that you hid these things from the wise and comprehending, and you revealed them to infants. So, when does this happen, letter A? When does this happen? And Matthew says, at this point in response. Now that's, that's a significant point, and sadly, many English translations skip it. Even the Legacy Standard Bible, which I like, misses this here, does not uh, translate it literally, because many think that that's just a Hebrew expression. And it is something you find in the Old Testament, in Hebrew, not in Greek, uh, when somebody's not even answering a question. It's just a, a way of speaking. He answered and said even though nobody asked anything. And so people have looked at this and said, well, who asked Jesus anything? How could he be answering? What's he answering? Well, except Matthew doesn't use that expression emptily. He has used it before, but it's always a response to something. It's not empty. It's not just an expression to Matthew. And so he says very deliberately, at that point, Jesus in response said. So he's got a point in mind, no no pun intended, that it was at this moment when this mission had gone out and these cities that had seen these great works of Christ had not repented. At that moment, in the face of the, of the widespread failure to respond on the, pat, on the part of those uh, to whom they'd reached out, to whom they'd ministered, to whom they'd preached. It was at that moment, in the face of this, and Jesus had, what had He just done? He had just uprated these cities for not repenting. And He had told them that uh, it, if these miracles had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented. If these miracles had been done in Sodom, it would still stand. And you look at that, and I'm sure some people look at that and think, so you're saying that God could have brought repentance there with those miracles, and, and he chose not to? Well, apparently. And you say, well, how's that fair? Okay, now here's where we find out if we learn from the first part of the sermon how is it fair? because they'd already had all the chances that they were owed. Because the test had already happened, and nobody is owed another chance. And it's up to the sovereign will of God, what He does. We're all condemned. If we get more chances, then we can be more condemned. But but, but the chances happened. It happened in the Garden of Eden. And so God chose not to send it to them, but He sent it to these people who, in fact, did not respond. So, this is in that moment, Matthew says, faced with these failure, the failure of these people to respond to their preaching and their ministering. Jesus answered. He responded to that situation. And he said this. Now, this, this is very instructive to us. What is Jesus going to say? It's at this moment, in response to the failure of these people to respond to these, the best preaching ever and the best, um, best demonstrations ever. I've, I've used kids I've used ice cream I've done different things here but I've never raised a dead man <laughs> I've never stopped the wind I've, I've never cleansed the leper um, and these are the sorts of illustrations Jesus had for his sermon and still they did not repent so how is Jesus going to respond the fact that he responds the way he does just peek ahead what does he say I thank you I praise you I acknowledge you. I adore you. I extol you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth. So, faced with man's failure, Jesus sides with God. He doesn't make excuses for men. He doesn't take the side of men. He sees this as the glorious work of God. Equally glorious in his hiding from the wise and in his revealing to the infants. Equally glorious, but he's going to praise God. And he's going to he's going to go to God. He's not going to sit and and introspect and mope, he's not going to say, you know, I think one more miracle we might have had him. If I just preached shorter, if I just preached longer, if I just used more alliteration, if I just not used alliteration, if I just not said things in threes, you know, this didn't happen. None of this happened. It wasn't any of that. It was in the final analysis, the sovereign work of God, in how he dealt with sinners who had already been condemned and deserved nothing but judgment, and yet were given another revelation, I should say another ex- exposure of God's power and his reality. So that, I think, is where we're going to pause for this week. Let me just note this down and Uh, wrap up in a few comments now a peek ahead and we see the part that is wonderful to see where jesus goes on to say come to me and he invites people to come to him and there it is again that in spite of this god in grace still reaches out in spite of this god sent a savior To seek and to save that which is lost. To save that which is lost. And so we come to him not as people who feel like we're entitled to anything because we're not. I'll tell you one of the most sadly ironic things about our situation, our human situation, that the most deadly thing about us at all times, what am I going to say? It's our pride. It's the most deadly thing about us. As Ryle says, nothing will sh- more surely keep a man out of heaven than pride. Nothing will more surely keep a Christian from grow- growing than pride. Nothing will more surely keep a Christian from uh, fruitfulness than pride. Or usefulness and service than pride. And it's, it's a sad thing because by this, what are we doing in our pride? Well, we think we're protecting ourselves. We're protecting our dignity, right? We're protecting our rights. We're protecting that we're not really that bad. But isn't it tragic that in so doing, we, we lose life? In so doing, we assure condemnation. Simply because we won't say to God, you're right about me. Everything you say about me is right. You need nothing from me. I need everything from you. You owe nothing to me but judgment. I need everything from you. Including life, forgiveness, reconciliation on your terms, but I give up. Hands up, pockets out, I give up. That's repentance. Repentance does not come to God to negotiate. You hear me? Repentance does not come to God as an equal. Repentance doesn't come to God thinking I've got things to offer or I've got bargaining chips. I don't. I lost them all in Genesis 3. I lost all my chips. And so all I can look for is from God. And thankfully, God be praised that as well as being holy, as well as being righteous, as well as being sovereign, God is gracious, God is loving. And in His infinite wisdom, He devised a plan of salvation by which, in my nature, one might come and fulfill the righteousness that my representative did not fulfill. Where my representative failed, Adam, this representative would pass and pass and pass and pass. And as the the sins of the one were credited to me by natural birth, the righteousness of the one can be credited through rebirth, through the sovereign grace of God. And when God breathes life into us, uh, our, our response is to repent and believe in Jesus any more than Lazarus and Jesus standing outside his tomb saying, Lazarus, come forth. Lazarus had no more ability to come forth than this pulpit has to float up off the ground, right? Until, what? Jesus gave him life. Jesus gave him life, said, Lazarus, come forth. And of course he did. Because why would a living man stay in a grave? And so when God comes to us in kindness and breathes his life into us and calls us to repent, then we come running to him because he's done a work of grace in our hearts. Something we never, ever could have produced from within ourselves, but is given us by the mighty, saving, creator God. Do you see now better how glorious that is? <laughs> Praise God. Oh, glory to God. Glory to God. Let us uh, take a moment now to reflect, to note down any final thoughts you have uh, or to-dos, and then I'll close this in prayer. A great God, we thank you for your word and how it penetrates our darkness. You don't say to us what we expect to hear. And sometimes we defeat ourselves because we so think we know what you're going to say, that when you do speak, we don't hear it. And we go to the word with some preconceptions and ideas of our own, and when it doesn't say uh, those, we, we think we heard them anyway. Uh, Father, it's a difficult thing for all of us, but it's the most important factor in our growth that we learn to hear you and hear you humbly and not struggle with you, but submit to the truth of your word. And Father, thank you for how the truth of your sovereignty and of our depravity and fallenness of sin exalts the wonder of your salvation, just how Jesus is a complete Savior, how he doesn't help us save ourselves. He saves us. He doesn't just offer us salvation. He accomplishes salvation. And your blessed spirit applies that salvation to us. Oh, Father, all glory to you. All glory to you. And if we find ourselves with a crown on our head, we will cast it at your feet. All glory to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Please stand with me. Stand so that we can sing together the first three verses of.